Thank you for listening to the Spectrum Lounge. If you enjoy this podcast, please support us at patreon.com backslash film fatale underscore NYC. And be sure to subscribe to the Spectrum Lounge. You can find us on SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, and YouTube. Welcome to the Spectrum Lounge podcast, where we discuss creators of color disrupting the game in TV, film, and pop culture. I am your host, Rebecca Theodore Bashan, and on this episode, I am joined by Aaron Squire, writer and co-executive producer of The Good Fight and Evil. Welcome, Aaron, to the well, to the Spectrum Lounge. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yes. Uh, number one, speaking of which, congratulations. Uh, from what I understand, TV Guide has posted Evil as the number one TV series. That's amazing. Yes, okay. Congratulations. <laughs> I mean, there's some we tough are... competition. <laughs> I know. Our staff, the writers, work really hard, and I'm glad to see us banging our heads against the wall for all those months on Zoom in right. the midst of George Floyd, the pandemic, all these other things uh, is paying off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so can you can you tell us about that? Because I know uh, season two, uh, the writers' room got together to to write Evil and the Good Fight. Is that correct? Yes, I'm mm-hmm. on both Evil and the Good Fight. Mm-hmm. So I was in pre-production meetings for my episode of the Good Fight. I was in Miami because I had a musical opening up about Louis Armstrong. Wow! And doing Zoom before Zoom was popular <laughs> uh, on this pre-production meeting. And then my musical got shut down, and then the episode, my episode for The Good Fight, got shut down halfway through. We would have just gotten another few days. We would have completed it, but it got shut down halfway through. Yeah. So I was in Miami thinking, all right, well, I don't want to go back to New York because it seems like everyone, that's like a COVID uh, you know, incubator sitting on a plane. <laughs> uh, and so I'll just hang out on the beach. Then they closed all the beaches down. And I was like, okay, I'll go back to my parents' house. Then I was just going to sit around and read a bunch of novels. Right. And I thought, this will be wonderful. I'll spend three or four months just inside. I'm very uh, introverted, uh-huh. as most writers are. I'd like right. to read. And I'm just going to go through all my all my novels that I wanted to read. And then CBS called saying, hey, we're going to start the evil room like two or three months early, like now. Wow. Like, okay. There, and I... I had a week off and I read like three novels on the beach in that week. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would just go to the beach and like read a hundred pages and then all the beaches closed down. And then the, even the, uh, the car I was renting enterprise said, you have to turn back in your car. Oh my goodness. So I, like, I can't even travel. So I was like, okay, I'm just going to go to my parents' place. Yeah. Uh, and then the hotel I was staying in, it said, said you have to leave. Oh. And then CBS was like, okay, we're starting the room since you guys probably have free time. Uh, and it was a blessing and a curse. It, mm-hmm. uh, the curse part was I thought for the first time in like two years, I was going to have a break. Yes. And instead we just went from the good fight right into the next season of evil. Wow. The blessing was maybe it was good in the midst of this to have some place to go. Because mm-hmm. I was just going to isolate. I was even thinking of doing a month long meditation retreat uh, in silence and isolation by myself. 
Mm. None of those things happen. Right. So I had to be there for my parents and I could help them out. And then I had a place to go for four hours on Zoom for evil. So we could sort of purge ourselves. So that was the blessing. Um, and I, you know, my dad passed away in January and I oh. got to spend six or seven months out of his last year seeing him, which mm-hmm. normally would not have happened. So that was also yeah. a blessing. Uh, and it's all right. He's been sick for like 15 years. So he's been on hospice for eight or nine. Yeah. So we were waiting for this. And I thought like, odds are I'm not going to be here when he passes away. But in fact, because of this pandemic, because of Zoom, I was there. And mm-hmm. in fact, I was there for like most of the last year. Right. Uh, and so I was sitting there. We were going to evil. Then I'd cl- close after four hours and I'd run errands for him and my mom and cook and clean up and help out. And then um, around the time of George Floyd, something wonderful happened. Mm-hmm. which was our cable broke down. Mm. And so I stopped watching TV and I didn't really go on social media. I would just go on the internet from work and then I would meditate and read and chill and help out my parents. And you're, I was in a suburb of Miami, which is very quiet. Mm. And so I was living actually in a very, I don't want to say peaceful state, but a very focused, concentrated in flowing state. Mm-hmm. And this was the time, I don't know if you remember last spring when white people were calling up black people like, are you okay? Yes. I just wanted to check in. <laughs> yeah. And so they were calling me up like, are you okay? And I'd be like, yes, I'm fine. What's going on? They're like, well, I just wanted to call up about George Floyd. I was like, well, yeah, I know about George Floyd, but I'm not inundated with George Floyd because I don't have cable TV and I'm not checking the internet. I know just enough but I don't want to drown in the information. Right. Uh, similar to several years ago when Daniel Pearl was killed and decapitated mm-hmm. by terrorists, uh, the American in Afghanistan or Pakistan. And everyone's like, have you seen the video? And I was like, well, now that I know there's a video, I don't need to see it. Right. Thank you for telling me this. I don't need to see the actual video. And the right. same thing with George Floyd. I actually never sat and watched the video because people told me there was a video. I was like, great. Okay. That's good to know. Mm-hmm. That sounds terrible. I don't need to have my mind focused on that. Right. Uh, and I feel like I've struck this balance that I'm trying to now replicate in my life of being informed without being inundated. Mm. So I can be like, okay, this is what's going on in the world. I don't need to see the video of someone getting brutally killed. Right. Thank you. I don't want that in my mind. Yeah. I hope the, the justice is served. Uh, okay, this is what's going on in Afghanistan. Thank you. I don't need to see the actual video of people being dragged through the streets. Yeah. And it just changed my whole perspective. So people were calling me up, white people, are you okay? And I was, I had to, you know, honor them for at least making an attempt at doing something different. So they were like, <laughs> oh, thank you. But honestly, deep inside, I was like, I'm fine, dude. But like, okay, sure. Right. You know, here's my Venmo if you want to give me some money, but I'm cool. Yeah, uh, but I am aware that we're going through this important shift, and I honor that without being, you know, an insomniac, sleepless, and terrorized by it. Yeah. Because then, when I'm terrorized by it, I am no use to anyone creatively, or as a social activist, or as anything. I'm just, you know, catatonic. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting. Like, but if I can be informed, you can yeah. add it to the show. Uh-huh. I can contribute, like I did to a few. Uh, initiatives and a few protests Mm -hmm. and I can stay balanced without slumping into 
depression or rage yes. all the time. Sorry, yeah. what were you saying? Oh, no, it was, it's so great listening to you because, like, just the things that you're talking about, I can see a lot of the things that you learned and were experiencing, I could see that reflected in season two of Evil. So I just thought that was, I just thought that, that was kind of cool. Like, the whole thing when you were, like, you know, being able to sleep and not being terrorized. And, of course, we have these characters in Evil that are sort of, like, visited by these demons, right? Which metaphorically could mean anything yeah. right like a <laughs> so i just thought that was i thought that was so cool that you but i think that is that's so important because you know like i've been talking to some of my other friends you know who are either writers journalists or you know screenwriters film or tv and um actually black uh network news black network channel they had a, a segment today in their health system um in their health uh uh segment where they were talking about uh brain fog, uh, brain fog, where it's sort of this mm. thing where you kind of forget things and, you know, just something that yeah. I've been talking to other creatives and it's like, how do you work through that? Cause we're all going through this collective, this global pandemic, black lives matter, all of that. And it's like, as an artist, how do you find that space within yourself to, to keep the creative juices going? I mean, clearly you, you've seen to master <laughs> or found a way to, to, to master that. So you have to protect that, uh, as Moby Dick would mm. say, that island of Tahiti within yourself, mm. where no one can go but yourself. Right. Not even your mother can go there. Mm-hmm. It's especially not the news. You have to protect that island Tahiti, where only you can go to the shores of that and venture into it. Because once you allow the world into it, through helpful, in quotations, criticism, or the news, or people like, I just want this to be a little bit better, but I, you know, then they just trample over your paradise of Tahiti. Mm. You have to keep people in a certain state where you love them and appreciate them, and you're like, you can't go here. This is my deepest internal part of me where creativity lives, where my spirituality lives. Right. And I need this to be respected, and I need to retreat here for a little bit, and I'll see you in a few. Maybe a few days, maybe a few hours. I'll see you in a few and I'll come back balanced and focused and ready and energized. Right. But the, when when I'm when I don't do that, I get dragged down by the news mm-hmm. or by my friends or by colleagues or by people who are, you know, rushing around. And the fault is only my own when I allow that to happen. Mm. And it's like you have to retreat to that. And so those two or three weeks when the cable was broken, my mom is an MSNBC junkie. And I was like, here, we have a smart TV. I will put on TED Talks and you can watch intelligent, transformative lectures about people just talking about the world in a broader sense outside of the news. And the nurse who was taking care of my dad at the time was watching it. And she was like, oh, my God, this is so good. Like the entire energy of the house changed for those two or three weeks because what was coming in was transformative knowledge and people who were inspirational, motivational speakers, and then other things. And then, of course, the cable came back on. And then MSNBC <laughs> came back on, and CNN was like, back to the world and the chaos. And I was like, oh, crap. But that quick <laughs> trial was yeah. so beautiful to experience. Like, we're only letting in things which lift our spirit. Mm. Other things you can read, like... And read in the newspaper and magazines, and believe me, I did for evil yeah. and for myself. Yes. But we're only letting things on this screen which uplift our spirit, which actually add to our spirit as Christians, as Buddhists, as people of the world, as mm-hmm. the nurse taking care of my 
dad, as my mom, and the mood just completely transformed. It was like we had formed our own island of Tahiti within the chaos of the surrounding storm of the world. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna take I'm gonna take that challenge on because I love it. I think because I it, you know I'm on social media and sometimes I can feel like my mood changing. And it's like, oh, why do I feel so crappy? Oh, because I'm on Twitter or you know seeing people fight or you know anti-trans, anti you know homophobic. And it's like. Yeah, I mean, you you can turn it off. You can log off of Twitter. You can turn off the television. You can, yeah, yeah, you're absolutely, you're absolutely right. And like, just for even a day. So I recommended a book that I love, The Diamond Cutter by Mike Gish and Michael Roach to a friend. Mm -hmm. And in the middle of this, he was like, oh, that was a great book. Did you do the circle days? And I was like, what are you talking about? And there was a chapter I completely forgotten about this book that I recommended called Circle Days. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's when you circle a day on your calendar and you shut off all internet and communications and you wake up, you meditate, you Mm. exercise, you read, you write, you cook, you clean, you journal, you meditate some more, you go to sleep. And that is your day. And he said, did you do a circle day? And I was like, oh my God, I completely, and I've read (laughs) this book for like 15 years. And I was like, I completely forgot about that chapter. I was like, I can do that. So mm-hmm. he said, well, I'm going to do a day where I'm meditating and focusing and not listening to anything for half a day. So he mm-hmm. sent me a meditator who had like a half day meditation retreat yes. where you walk around a park. And I did that. And then I was like, I'm going to do a circle day because you brought this up. And I tell everyone the day before, like, by the way, I'm not going to respond tomorrow. And at midnight, I shut off everything. If I'm still up, I read something, hardback, paperback, mm-hmm. and then I go to sleep. The next morning, I wake up, I meditate. You do the physical exercise. You do the second meditation. You cook yourself. You <laughs> clean. And and then you do a little bit more meditation. You write in your journal. Yeah. And it was so unbelievably, uh, I keep using the word transformative, but transcendent. Um, it was to just have a day where you circle on your calendar and say, I'm, I'm going to focus on this. And as an artist, it actually makes you more creative because then coming out yeah. of that day had all these ideas, all these things. And guess what? At midnight, you can turn all the internet back on. <laughs> like let all the flood back in and check right. your email before you go to bed. But uh-huh. just like 24 hours. And then the ideas in the circle days, if you get wealthy and fabulous enough, you mm-hmm. do this once a week. So mm-hmm. like a Wednesday, mm-hmm. you tell people, this is my circle day. And I'm, I was trying to do it like maybe once a month. Right. Like I can do it once a month, like on a Saturday mm-hmm. and tell people, do not bother me. It changes <laughs> everything about your creative process, the ideas you have, the energy you have coming back into just the next day. And mm-hmm. the ideas that trickle out of that last for weeks and months. That is amazing. Yeah, I'm going to try that. I am so going to try it. I can't wait for people to hear this podcast for any any creatives. I'm sure that they can try this as well. So, um, and if you can't do a circle day, do a half a day until 12 noon the following day. Yes. Like what my friend did. Like mm-hmm. whatever to your ability, I tried the noon thing and that was fine. Just to be like from midnight to noon, this is what I'm focusing on. Yes. And then after you do that, try maybe a full day or whatever you want. Keep doing, but like 12 or 24 hours is a very important time. Mm -hmm. Even if half of that time is sleep, a very important time to be like, no internet. 
yeah. no cable, no news, right. right? No, no computer. If I have to write something, write it on a notepad. Okay. I love that. <laughs> I actually love that. Idea. Yeah. <laughs> I have all these journals that I buy and I, I haven't used them and I'm like, okay, now I can put them to use now. Um, so let's talk about season two about evil. Well, number one, I'm a huge fan of this show. I, was I t someone told me about this show and my friend Kelly Terrell she's actually a screenwriter too and she was like you have to watch the show it's called Evil I'm like uh, I, I was like I feel like I saw a trailer for it I'm not sure she was like it's by Robert and Michelle King and I was like okay sold because um, <laughs> I'm a good I'm a huge fan <laughs> of the, the Good Wife and the Good Fight and then I watched it and I didn't even really know what to expect and it, it just exceeded my expectations because I was like oh my god because they're talking about like religion and faith and you know gender and race and just like you know like now I'm sort of like an apostle for for evil I'm telling everybody you know in my circle to watch it I'm like the best way I can describe it I was like think of it like the x-files meets the vatican that's the only way I know it's you know, and they were like, oh, okay, I'll right. start watching it. <laughs> so people have been like, I've had people who came back to me and they're like, this show is so addictive. And so I was like, I don't know how they're going to top season one, but you guys managed to pull it off with the second one. So my first question is, what were, what was, what were the ideas or the intentions when you decide, when you guys went back into the writer's room for season two? Because there were so many um, great cliffhangers, like the fact that, you know, Kristen killed LaRue and it was like really oh, okay that happened um and then you know we're and then with season two we're seeing that these three main characters are sort of fighting with like their individual or their inner demons so like what were what were some of the ideas or your thoughts when you guys walked into season two of, of evil I mean this is more the structure of a writer's room for the kings mm -hmm. who are geniuses right generally you come back from the last season you go what did you like what did you hate and people mm -hmm. just list them all out and people write on the board. And then you go, what threads did we not complete? <laughs> <And people laughs> like, by the way, these are all the threads. They go, okay, what yeah. can we honestly address? What are the threads we think we could address? And then we go into, by the way, what stories did we like last season that we just didn't do mm -hmm. for lack of time? Right. And then once you begin with that, then you start pitching on top of that. Mm -hmm. And seeing what influential, what pitches are influenced by, oh, yeah, we didn't pick up this thread, but this is the way to do this. And, oh, yeah, I'm feeling this vibe. And this is the energy I'm coming with. And, by the way, what were you guys reading? Uh, and so it was this wonderful melange of very literate, smart writers who are up on their TV, who, are, who know horror, mm -hmm. uh, who know cinema and theater and literature and mm. so you put all that together in an open room and you flow from that and i remember i'd bring in something based upon a new yorker short story uh that might be for season three so i'm not gonna say but like it was yeah. an idea from a new yorker story where i was like oh isn't this fascinating this phenomenon right uh and i am more you know buddhist quantum physics guy so i'm more <laughs> fascinated with phenomenon that's spooky and eerie Mm -hmm. that can then become horror. There right. are other people in the room who are more focused on horror and there are more people who are focused on social justice, which I like too. But I'm mm -hmm. like, you can find that spooky, eerie, quantum physics, science, Christian, Buddhist, like gray area uh, that can become scary um, there. Right. And then psychologically, you know, Carl Jung, I was fascinated by his red book mm -hmm. that he wrote towards the end of his life when he, when he might've been going crazy. Wow. And so he was writing these delusions mm 
mm-hmm. uh, in his book, but he's like, don't publish it until after I'm dead because I don't want people to think I'm crazy. Right. Oh and my so goodness. I would, we're bringing this material in with psychology, with science, with um, religion and spirituality. And, you know, it, the, the stuff just bubbles up to the top. And there were ideas that were pitched in the first week that were so good that just didn't make it into the season. So then maybe mm. there'll be season three. There were ideas mm-hmm. that people were like, yes, we don't have time <laughs> for that. But this is a great, and, and there are a few that were like psychological experiments that I brought in yes. based upon books I read, mm-hmm. where, you know, how you can drive people to madness just through using psychology and through using an experiment. Wow. And they're wow. like, all right, we're going to set up this experiment and you see how people slowly warp their reality around power that you give in an experiment. Mm-hmm. Similar to the Stanford prison test, but it's not that, it's something else. We're right. like, if you just set up an example of power and status mm-hmm. and you let people go, the human mind is amazing in how it will warp itself. We're mm-hmm. seeing this right now with COVID, the anti-vax movement, and people taking horse dewormer as mm. treatment and all these weird exp- like things that don't make to me any sense mm-hmm. but at the same time make a lot of sense when you consider how the human mind will create a story and will create a passageway for this story to connect to them right and it's like okay you don't believe the fda but you believe you're gonna take horse dewormer really like what <laughs> and, but when you hear their logic you're like oh i get it right human beings are complex and very confusing is what you're saying Right, right. Yeah. So, I mean, let's let's start with the Kristen storyline, because I wanted to talk to you about episode six, uh, which was C for Cops. And I love this episode. And of course, I saw you wrote and I was like, of course. Uh, But it was just because it starts out very simply. Right. It starts out with a white police officer who shoots and kills an African-American woman. Right. Things that we see in the news every day. And then, you know, basically what someone from the police union comes to Kristen and her team and the priest and they're like, well, he's saying he saw a demon. And what starts out is like, because <laughs> clearly like what I loved about the opening scene is like all three of them had their arms like crossed, like, okay, we know what this is, right? This is police brutality. Yeah. Like, like, why are you guys? And then somehow we just fall into this rabbit hole where it becomes so much more than that. Like it becomes like, this indictment of propaganda shows, which I loved. I love that. I was like, wow. So how did you get the idea for, for that episode and just all the themes that you wanted to, to hit in that episode? Well, you know, I wrote a lot of articles about for Talking Points Memo in the New Republic about cops and about mm-hmm. POC cops and about the mentality of cops uh, at the start of Ferguson when I was still in school all the way up to now. Right. So I like talk to cops and there is a psychological phenomenon where cops see a gun where there is no gun. Mm. And I was like, come on, man. This was years ago. I was like, come on, man, this is bullshit. But they're like, no, no, there is a phenomenon where perfectly nice liberal cops, they, in a heat of a moment, will see a gun where there's not a gun. And so you go, is that psychology or is that demonic? Mm-hmm. Is it racial bias? But is a racial bias demonic or is it just their racial bias through the police training. Then we did research about police training. We saw, and I talked to cops and a lot of their training is so bizarre. Their training gets them to think it's us against the world. Mm -hmm. And the people out there are the enemy and they're going to kill you if you're not careful. And they get all these young 24 year olds to be like, you're going to get killed. And the first thing they do 
in a lot of these police academies is they show these cops all these awful worst case scenarios of cops getting killed in traffic stops. Oh, wow. They show them like, this is what's going to happen to you. If you're not vigilant, you're going to get, and they show this and this runs through the cops imagination and their nightmares. Mm -hmm. And it soaks into their DNA of being a cop. And then they continue training. Right. And so cops walk out of there with this mentality, black cops and Latino cops too, of like, it's us versus the world, man. If we let our guard down for a second, I'm going to end up on one of those effing videos that they're going to show to rookie cops. Uh, And so I was like, well, you could argue spiritually this is demonic. Mm -hmm. uh, Or you could say it's like, you could say it's psychologically demonic. You could just say it's effed up. Right. Right. Um, Right. That you're, you're sort of priming the pump Mm -hmm. before people even start to feel this way. Yeah. And then on top of that, the biggest thing which does that after you've been through police training, which only for most police officers lasts a few weeks or a few months, and then you're done for the rest of your life, mm-hmm. and you're just a cop. Right. But what continues the prime the pump for them are the cop shows and the mm. cop movies and the copaganda. Mm-hmm. So after they've had that instilled in them, out in the world you have your your shows, which I'm not going to name because we all know them. Mm-hmm. And your movies where, you know, it's former rappers playing cops in movies and in TV shows and they're rough and tough and, you know, and you have this sort of mentality of the Dirty Harry has carried the Dirty Harry archetype of Clint Eastwood in the 70s yes. is carried forward into now. Mm-hmm. And Dirty Harry, and I studied this because I was a film major at Northwestern, we studied like action movies, which mm-hmm. is actually one of the funniest important classes I took in film school because action movies are just about quote entertainment and you can sneak in so many insidious things when it's about entertainment and explosions. Wow. So we watched everything from Die Hard to Dirty Harry to uh, what was that dog film? Anyway, we watched a lot of different action movies. Mm -hmm. Uh, Terminator because it's like this is America's psychosis and psychology through action movies. Uh, The Spaghetti Westerns, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. And then in Dirty Harry, he was like, the professor was explaining, okay, it's the 1970s after hippies. Mm -hmm. Uh, San Francisco is looked upon as this chaotic hippie place. Right. Uh, And a lot of white people who voted for Richard Nixon feel this huge resentment. And that resentment is actually deeply attached to people of color and black people, Mm -hmm. but they would never say that. So it's diffused through these different markers of like hippies, and black people, quote, trying to rob me and these other things. And so the studio's like, what if we devise this white character who's straight out of Sergio Leone's Spaghetti Westerns, mm-hmm. except he's in San Francisco and he's a cop. And it's like, well, why don't we cut out the middleman and just get the guy from Sergio Leone's Spaghetti Westerns, Clint Eastwood, <laughs> to be Dirty Harry. Right. And he'll walk around with the biggest effing gun possible of 45, mm-hmm. which can which is completely unnecessary for like policing. Mm-hmm. It's like walking around with the bazooka. Right. And he will just intimidate these people of color and these dirty hippies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it worked. Dirty Harry was a runaway hit. Mm-hmm. And then after that, you had Straw Dogs uh, by Peck and Paw. You had all these examples of white masculinity protecting the world, kind of like the um, the searchers. Right. Uh, the the epic, like, I'm protecting the world from the savages out there. 
Mm-hmm. But it's kind of like, no, you're, you know, protecting your ego mm-hmm. uh, and using white females as an excuse to protect your ego and wow. to brutalize other people. Right. And so the Sergio Leone, Spaghetti Western, Dirty Harry uh, archetype still lives today, except now it's in TV shows and they run all the time, 24 right. hours a day throughout the world. There is some TV show where it's a cop who doesn't play by the rules, mm-hmm. uh, who is, you know, and then usually it's a black police chief who wants him to play by the rules. That's true. They, that is know, so true. <laughs> Turning your badge, you know, at a certain point where he doesn't play by the rules. And it's kind of so hilarious from Beverly Hills Cop to Straw Dogs to Dirty Harry to the current TV shows. You can draw a line mm-hmm. and draw also a line that correlates to increased levels of police brutality, not just the cases that make the news that are filmed on people's cameras, but the day-to-day stuff that Black people put up with, the low-level police brutality that most people don't report. Mm -hmm. The intimidation, the humiliation, the degradation of humanity that a lot of cops feel like they are doing their job by, by enforcing these rules. They do not wake up. The average cop doesn't wake up in the morning thinking time to brutalize black people time to rape and torture black like that's Mm. not their mentality Mm. uh so it's important that we don't demonize that we have to get to the root of this which is this old western john ford mentality of i have to protect the white woman from the savages Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and in that that's carried forward for white women that's carried forward for Kristen. that's carried forward for the police unit Uh, And it influences the way they enforce things and the way they see guns that aren't there and how they appear that cause them to shoot and panic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because what what I thought was And like we wanted to talk about, and unfortunately, Mm -hmm. you know, we are on a, 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 you know, we're on a network that has a lot of those shows. I was thinking about that. I was thinking about that word. I was like, would they even, I was like, it's a good thing we have Paramount Plus because I don't think CBS would have aired that episode. At least I don't know. They're like, hey, this is because CBS. That's pretty much all it is. It's it's so many procedures. Like last night, I just saw a trailer for CSI Vegas, and I'm like, wait a minute, didn't they cancel that show? And they're like, nope, we brought back the original cast. And I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> I see what I see what's going on here. Um, I mean, I know that there was some talk last year. I mean, there there were actually some really cool, uh, pretty good articles that had. Um, address this right in the in the height of the Black Lives Matter uh, protest last year because we were kind of seeing like a reckoning in Hollywood as well. So there was a questioning of these propaganda shows. Like, are we are like are these shows? Or should we continue to make these shows? Or if these shows are going to air, are we actually going to get real and talk about how a lot of these cops cross the line? Right? Like, what is it? A uh, uh, SVU? Right? Uh, we've got. Yeah. Uh, Stabler. Now he has his own show. Like if you throughout the whole show, throughout his whole run in the original SVUs, that's what Stabler did. He was like the rebel. He, you know, kind of went against the rules or whatever. And now that I think about it, I was like, he crossed a lot of lines. But now he's been rewarded. But now he has his own show, and I'm like, wow, this is never gonna end. Yeah. <laughs> that is crazy. Um, what's interesting in C for Cop was when you talk about white women, right, have this protection of white women is like, you have the storyline. Kristen is part of the case. And she's clearly like, 
this very, you know, liberal, progressive white woman, right? Who's also friends with a white woman cop. And you see several scenes. There's a couple of scenes where she talks with Mia. Um, and, you know, Mia has this conversation, they're having this conversation about the cop. And Mia's like, well, no, but he's one of the good ones, right? And then later, yeah, yeah and then later in the episode, right? Because throughout season two, we're wondering when Kristen is going to be caught for the murder of LaRue. And then she thinks she sees LaRue's ghost and she goes out with the same axe pick, right? To confront him. And then Mia uh, and a white woman, uh, another white woman cop come in and they cover up the crime. Like, was it surprising? Not really, but it was just so fascinating to me. And and I really love the fact that you, you swing towards the fences with this character. While she is a protagonist, she's an antagonist in some ways too. Like she basically cashed in on her white woman privilege for murdering someone else. Yeah. Like was that was there a debate and about I that in the writers' room? Robert or? and Michelle King for mm-hmm. doing that. The only thing question was would C, would CBS Studios allow us to do it? Mm. But I applaud Robert and Michelle King for pushing this because as a POC, sometimes I will self censor myself among white showrunners. Like they're not going to allow me to say this. Right. But then in the midst of this, like no, no, really say it. So we're like, you want me to really say it? Like me, Davidi, and the other black, be like, you want me to really say this? Like here's what I'm really saying. Right. Like, I'm walking around my parents' neighborhood every day, listening to podcasts, mm-hmm. and there was a new podcast on by showrunners, and one of them was reviewing one of the classic uh, TV shows in the last 20 years, The Shield. Okay. Mm-hmm. And they're talking about how important The Shield was for FX, and it pretty much launched FX as a network. Mm. And I've never seen The Shield. Mm. So I go home and I pop in The Shield, the pilot from 2002. And I'm like, oh my God, this is not age well. Like wow. the dirty white cop, he's insulting the Mexican vendor, he's just insulting the black guy in the pilot. He's mm. like insulting the woman. And this is the template for revolutionary cop show. And I'm like, what is revolutionary about this? He's just more outright in his racism and misogyny and bigotry than NYPD Blue, which sort of put it another step forward in the Archie Bunker, Dirty Harry, you know, steps Mm -hmm. of the white protagonist. He's just taking it a step further. But what is revolutionary about a dirty white cop who's breaking the rules and not following the rules and eventually will turn out to be right. But in the meantime, he's going to do all these kind of underhanded, backstabby, cruel things to POC. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was like, oh, and I was listening to this podcast with a white person talking to another white person about important <laughs> TV drama mm-hmm. and The Shield. And I was like, oh, The Shield is a part of this Dirty Harry thing. And mm-hmm. like, and no one's questioning it. And we're in the middle of George Floyd. We're in the middle of this and I'm listening to a podcast of how how important The Shield is and no one's doing any like, oh, well, now that show's pretty awful, isn't it? Aren't you kind of responsible for the propaganda which has led to the scenario we're in now? Mm. Like there was no reflection going on. Right. And so coming into the room with that and with everything you said and, and what's going on in the news, you're like... We have to, and, and you know, we're on a network which has profited in the past and maybe currently off of shows that have that same easy mentality. I understand why executives do it because a large percentage of the country wants to see that. Mm-hmm. But is there, what, at what point do we take responsibility to say, the more we show this, the more we're telling cops that are in the gray area 
go ahead, step over into the dark side. Right. There are dirty cops. Dirty cops don't need to watch The, the Shield or, <laughs> or like any TV show to get their initiative. Right, there right. are good cops mm-hmm. who are going to do, and I think the majority of cops are good. But then there's that gray area of like the 10 or 20% of cops that could go either way. Mm-hmm. And when you sit down and you watch what's on TV and TV goes, come on, don't you want to wear the dark sunglasses and the leather jacket? Come on. <laughs> you know, don't you want to not follow the rules? The rules are for losers, right? They're for squares. Right. And, you know, that starts getting in their ear. Mm-hmm. These yeah. good people in the gray area, it's very easy to influence them. And, and it, it would be, it was nice to have a show that addressed that or episode that like delved into that. Cause that mm-hmm. could be a whole thing. Oh. Years ago when I was in LA working on This Is Us, mm-hmm. I was, I was <laughs> making jokes about, um, not, what are, not automatopias, but pan, uh, palindromes. Mm-hmm. And I just came up with a palindrome that was a cop show about a guy in a cop show who's investigating the murder of his friend who was a cop in a cop show. Like, it was, like, very meta. Wow. And I was writing this as an outline. This is in 2017, just, like, as a meta cop show of, like, dark comedy of a guy, like, my my partner was murdered on this cop show, and I want to know who did it. Mm -hmm. And I'm a cop at a cop show. And just, like, the layers and layers of of cops, people pretending to be cops, pretending to be cops, pretending to be cops. Right. And how it, like, gets out of hand and becomes out of control as a dark comedy, just because it amuses me. Yeah, yeah. To and see it, how, you know, some people who work on cop shows as writers or as actors mm-hmm. will begin to think of themselves as cops mm-hmm. when a situation arises. Just like when L.A. Law was around, a uh, famous story, some of the actors started thinking they were lawyers. And when they had divorces, <laughs> they like represent myself and they got destroyed in a court. Because like, you are not a lawyer. You are an actor playing a lawyer. But the difference is a court of law is a neutral area where justice prevails usually. But the streets, when an actor starts thinking they're a cop, Uh that's an emergency scenario and they, you know, they have this in their DNA, they might react like a rogue cop Mm -hmm. and hurt someone. Right, right. I mean, that's what George Zimmerman tried to do, right? Like he was doing Neighborhood Watch and he saw... Trayvon Martin, and he put it upon himself, like, "Hey, I don't know this guy," and so and look what happened, right? Yeah, yeah. It's the launch of this whole this mm-hmm. whole cycle we're still in yeah. was launched by a person, a wannabe cop. Yes, souped yes. up by Dirty Harry. Oh boy, yeah. And the ending too, where you know Mia, Mia, and the other white woman cop, you know, uh, it, when Mia and uh, and Kristen are talking, and then we basically understand that Mia is going to cover up for her. And it was the last line she said that just, it stabbed me in the heart where she was like, Oh, you know what? We'll just tell the station that you saw a black man, a black man in your backyard and you wanted to check it out. And I was like, Oh, hell. And I'll be, I'll be honest. I thought Kristen would say something, right? Like, okay, it's already, you're already getting your murder covered up. Right. Okay. And then for her, cause I'm thinking one of her closest friends is David. Right. And we had just seen this. She had just gotten a phone call a few hours before that David and Ben were being these are two men of color, a black man and a South Asian man who are being, you know, um, they're being harassed by the police. Meanwhile, notice she was I noticed she wasn't harassed at all. You know what I mean? And I was just like, and you would think that she would have stood up for like, no, you can't do that. 
she just stood there and said nothing. And it is like the complicity, like the silence and the complicity to me is like it's it speaks to so many well-meaning white people like Kristen, right, who think that they're good. But the silence can be just as damaging, you know, when you when you don't speak up for, yeah. for other POC. So I just I was shocked. <laughs> I mean, TV is interesting. The time limits. The time limits means we have to cut things. Mm -hmm. There was a whole lot more where if this was a movie, yeah. the exploration of the two men of color mm -hmm. uh, that were cut for time, where they actually went into like kind of my internal monologue. Like I actually grew up liking Tom Clancy and, and Jack Ryan. Mm -hmm. I actually grew up liking these people. And now I don't know how I feel about them. Mm -hmm. You know, this whole mentality of like, you know, I, I'm not going to pretend like I'm some woke millennial for justice and i've never watched a entertaining action movie no i watch those mm -hmm. i watch entertaining action movies in which the good guy is a cop who doesn't play by the rules <laughs> uh that's what i grew up on yes and i wouldn't trade it for anything in the world for like a boring woke drama that informs me and lectures me. no i don't want to see that mm -hmm. uh, and so i struggle with that and i right. think the care all those characters struggle with that the men of color struggle with that because they're like yeah i like an action movie i like die hard Mm -hmm. They were he was shooting at like ethnic people, but they were like white ethnic people. But it's really one step <laughs> removed from like a Muslim yes. ethnic person. In right. You're like, we we're really that close <laughs> to being in a Uzbekistan or yeah. a Stan country. Uh-huh. Yeah. No, it's it's true. I was just sort of like, well, yeah, I mean, but I, 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 here's a question here, because there's been a debate, right? Like there's been this debate on Twitter, particularly in black Twitter, like film critic Twitter and uh, and TV critic Twitter is this debate about, or just in general with no matter the race about having complicated characters, right? Whether they're morally compromised or just straight out evil that sometimes when we watch these movies or even the critiques of these movies and these TV shows, the critique sometimes isn't so much about the craft or the writing of the show. It's about the morality of the character. So it's like, well, character XYZ yeah. did something evil and I didn't like that, so therefore the show is bad. And so therefore I won't watch the show. And so I, I would love to know, like, from your perspective. I'm not a fan of that. Okay, let's talk about it. <laughs> I'm a fan of craft, craft, craft. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I hate to say that because I know we're in, you know, a cancel culture and people have to be appropriate. Mm -hmm. But I, I'm a fan of give me the craft. I'm intelligent enough to figure out the morality and how I don't agree with it. Mm -hmm. I realized that straw dog was used by the Zimbabwe army to slaughter people that mm. they showed Peck and Paw's classic to the soldiers to get them amped up Jesus, wow. to go to war and slaughter people mm -hmm. at the same time. Do I want straw dog canceled from the record? No, I'm intelligent enough that I want the right to look at straw dog now Mm -hmm. make my own evaluation of it, even though I know it's been used probably in genocide. Mm -hmm. Even though when Sam Peckinbaugh found out about that, he was horrified and probably regretted ever doing that with Dustin Hoffman. Right. I want the art to live. And it's a debate that's in um, Martin McDonough's famous play, Pillow Man, mm -hmm. where a guy is writing, a short story writer is in a Gestapo authoritarian state and he's arrested because there is a serial killer going around emulating his stories and killing kids. Mm -hmm. And the authoritarian state is torturing this short story writer and his brother. And at 
to me, the moral is the writer at the end was like, I would rather have these stories out there. Mm-hmm. In the authoritarian state, it says, even if you realize that it's influencing this serial killer and he's killing these kids. And he's like, yes, because it is my expression. I cannot control. And he's like, I do not like that there's a serial killer out there. I do not like the kids are getting killed. Mm-hmm. But if you're telling me now I am responsible, my creativity has to be in check for every lunatic or rogue using it, mm-hmm. then I'm never going to write anything interesting. Right. And so at the end of the Pillow Man, spoiler, it's been out for 15 years, so I'm going to spoil it for <laughs> Go ahead. Years. At the end of the Pillow Man, the last threat the author- authoritarian status has is like, if you don't do what we say, we're going to burn all your stories. Wow. Because he's the one thing he holds on to is like, at least my stories will live. You're mm-hmm. going to torture me to death. You're going to torture my brother to death. I accept mm-hmm. that. But at least my stories will live on to I will never relinquish. So right. then the authoritarian goes, we're going to burn all your stories so that they don't even exist. Mm. Yeah. And that causes him to pause for a second. But he still goes through with it. He still is like, no, the rights of the artist, and this is very Western, this isn't necessarily going to be mm. appropriate for other cultures, but I'm raised in America. Even though I'm Black, I'm raised in America. The, the rights and the freedom of the <laughs> artist is important to me. And I would rather have the ability, I would rather you have the ability to watch Birth of a Nation and have a discussion than having Birth of a Nation canceled. Like, let's have a discussion. This is a racist piece of, in my opinion, crap. But hey, a lot right. of film critics think this is an important movie. Mm-hmm. Let's watch this and have a talk. Um, I'm sorry. No, I was thinking about that movie Quills. Uh, with Jeffrey Rush. Uh, yeah. It was about the Marquis, yeah. Marquis de Sade. And remember the ending, they had taken everything. They had him jailed up. They didn't give him any paper, nothing. They were like, you can't write these stories. And so I think what he was doing is that he put a hole in his prison wall and he was whispering the story to the washwoman. I think it was Kate Winslet. So towards the end, he had like an idea for this story. And so it was sort of like this chain where Marquis de Sade was whispering this salacious story and it was going through several parties and it was supposed to go to the person who was going to write it down and i think i believe what happened is that one of the people in the chain he was someone who had shown very violent tendencies he wasn't quite right right in his head somehow he listened to Mm -hmm. you saw the expressions of the other people in the chain a lot of them were like oh my god this is so you know and then this guy listens to that story and then it causes him to kill kate winslet's character Right. And so oh, when yeah. they find that yeah. out, yeah. And then they, the authorities are like, well, it's your fault because you wrote, you know, you came up with that story and it caused him to murder Kate Winston. When, when you saw the movie, he had been looking at Kate weirdly throughout the whole time. You know what I mean? So it's this yeah. idea of, well, his, his stories or his creativity caused him to murder her. You know what I mean? And I was just like, oh no, that's not the message here. <laughs> or at least they got the yeah, wrong message I mean- from it. Yeah. I mean, Twitter isn't the best place to debate this, but mm-hmm. like we can have this debate. I'm not saying I am never wrong and the artist, but I more err on the artist side, but we can have the debate about mm-hmm. what's right, what's wrong and where it crosses the line. Because look, we're black. I grew up on rap, gangster rap music, which was a- according to white people and a lot of uh, black respectable politicians, the plague of the nineties. <laughs> we got to stop this gangster rap music. Right. And I was like, okay, but is this really the problem we're focusing on? Mm-hmm. And the mainstream media was like, yes, 
gangster rap music is evil. And I was like, okay, yeah, it's a little violent. And if I listen too much, if I listen to too much of it, it definitely changes my mood. Mm. But do I want to X out these people expressing themselves? Even even though a lot of gangster rap music was not the NWA, you know, too like most of it was trash. Well, most of it was not too dumb <laughs> right. in the 90s. Right. Just that we don't remember that. It was like a lot of trash and stupid, boring lyrics. <laughs> but I, I want to X out that entire genre mm-hmm. for the 90% that was bad at the risk of losing that 10% creme de la creme. Yes. And someone, you know, being black and being from Miami, where Two Life Crew came from, and had the Supreme Court battle where Two Life Crew was the first truly x-rated raunchy rap group in america Mm -hmm. and white people tried to cancel them saying you can't rap about booty clapping and this and that and blah blah. now that's common by the way we take that for granted oh back in the late 80s (laughs) early 90s it was like you can't rap about booty clapping and this and that and they and they banned their album Mm -hmm. And, and they had to go all the way up to the supreme court i think partially because they were black yes they had to go all the way up to the supreme court and the supreme court had to be like this is these are artists. I know they wear do-rags and they're from the hood. They're allowed to talk about booty clapping. Mm-hmm. And then white people are like shocked, like even the black people are artists? Like, yes, even the black people are artists. <laughs> Stop messing with us. Leave us alone. Like, Mind you, they had nothing to say for Hugh Hefner or any of these other, you know what I mean? It was just sort of like, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You had to get the approval from you know a bunch of white people in robes, even the black people from the hood <laughs> Talking about booty clapping our artists, just like Picasso. They're like, oh, crap, really? Yes. Right. Leave them alone. <laughs> and then they tried to add all these labels, like, well, we have to add a parental warning and you can't buy it if you're 18. Like, and Tipper Gore was on it and all these other like liberal Democrats and white people on the Republican side united behind, like, we have to protect our precious children's ears. And I was like, you have not been on the playground and seen how children talk. Right. Right. Children are nasty. <laughs> they are. <laughs> so I wanted to talk about the two other characters, two other characters real quick. Um, there's been some interesting developments. Like we find out with uh, Ben's character, we find out that he was part of a, um, of an experiment that was called CAS3, right? Where it was gene editing. And we're yeah. understanding that that has to do with where Kristen's daughter was conceived and all of these children that we've been seeing the last two seasons where they're not, you know, quite right. Like, how did you guys come up with that? Cause that was, I didn't see that one coming. I was like, wait, what? Okay. <laughs> I mean, that was from the room and from another writer. I mm-hmm. will say when I was in LA in 2016, 2017, yeah. I was meeting with an executive. We were hanging out a white woman mm-hmm. and she was telling me that her family had this genetic disease and that a doctor offered to just eliminate it. And I was like, what? Mm. Just eliminate it in the editing, just splice it out, just cut it out of the, so that she could have kids who weren't gonna have this disease. Mm-hmm. And that was the first time, you know, five years ago, I was like, oh, we've reached that point, have mm-hmm. we? Mm-hmm. Uh, and someone just casually mentioned like, yeah, I could get this this thing, just edit it out. Uh, and then I did a little bit of research about that. And I was I, I was more fascinated with that as like, almost a bourgeoisie upper middle class thing that's now going to be offered to certain people. Like we can just edit this out or you could have a kid, a designer kid with this and these, these attributes and the, the side effects of that. That was what I was interested Mm -hmm. in the side effects of 
when you have a designer kid and this and this is edited out, that there are certain elements that you're right. not fully aware of and in control of when you start editing out mm. the sickle cell disease because you don't want your kid to suffer from sickle cell, which is a noble thing. Or, right. You know, in China, mm-hmm. the doctor who was arrested because he edited out uh, the ability of people to get HIV. Would you think, oh, that's a great thing? And the Chinese government like arrested that person quickly because they could see what was going to happen once you start down that road. Mm-hmm. Uh, you end up with, you know, season two. George, uh, the demon with the Brit- the British accent, which cracked me up because when we saw first saw George, I thought he was terrifying. Then he opened up his mouth, and I'm like, oh, he's comic relief. Okay, this is cool. And so now uh, <laughs> Ben has his own demonness. Named Abby. She's fantastic, yeah. by the way. I love their interaction. How, did you come up with the idea for Abby, or was that something in the uh, in the writers? Because oh, they have this a, weird kind of BDSM vibe going on. That wasn't you. Okay. That was definitely the writers. Room. That was not me. I was like, okay, he's getting okay. Cool. Okay, I'll roll with this. Yeah, they they have a very strange dynamic that kind of works for me. I think that's really cool. Um, And then as far as David, and I was so glad that you guys addressed this in season two, because it was, it was kind of like the quiet part, not really said out loud, but the fact that David is an African-American man who is studying to be a priest. Right. And, And throughout season one, we would see with, you know, his scenes within the church and, and the parish parish, he's usually the only black man there. And you guys, you know, you guys addressed it in season two. Was that, was that your idea? Like, how did, how did that come about? Cause I, I thought that was great. And just kind of like a, a, a discussion about the Catholic church and how they deal with racism and how they deal with the lack of, I think you, there's a line where he said there's only 250 black priests, uh, Catholic priests in America. I was like, Oh my God. Yeah. Well, Robert King uh, is a devout Catholic. Mm. So he goes to mass. He sees it from the street level. Mm-hmm. I remember when the good fight was starting season two and our office wasn't ready in Brooklyn. They had us in CBS BlackRock in middle of Manhattan for that first month or two. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so for the lunch breaks, I would walk around and I would go to the churches in midtown Manhattan, which are these huge old churches. Mm-hmm. And I would just walk inside and sit and think. Uh, and most of them were empty. Uh, And I began thinking about, from my end as a Buddhist, uh, the lack of Buddhist black priests and nuns. Mm -hmm. And also, according to Lord Buddha, 2,500 years ago, he said, you know, around this time, we will be in the the age of decline. Mm -hmm. We'll begin in the beginning of the dark ages. Mm -hmm. The beginning of the dark ages is, People aren't really studying the deep text anymore. Not a lot of people are having any realizations anymore. Mm. The churches are emptying out. Less and less people are attending them. Mm. They're turning into gift shops. Um, No one's having any real discoveries or connections to God. Wow. And like, this is what Lord Buddha said 2,500 years ago about, you know, this is what's going to happen about 2,500 years from now. Mm. He's like, we're going to enter the age of decline. And this is not only for Buddhism. He's like, this is going to be for all religions. Because karmically, the mental seeds for humanity have worn out after this time. And you go, you even compare New York City 500 years ago, where, you know, you had to attend a church. Everyone was going to church, like, to now. And you look at these empty churches. You walk around and they're so empty. 
uh, and the people who do get the opportunity to study are most of the time uh, people of means who come from well-to-do families, which means they're going to be white. Right. And so in addition to being in the age of degeneration, we have less and less people of color who are getting into the monastery, who are becoming priests and nuns, which then accelerates the degeneration of our era. Um, The flip side of the age of degeneration is there are forces that are dark, that are more powerful in dark times. And if you find a way to utilize them, you actually get to your goal quicker. Mm -hmm. I'm talking in very... I'm talking in cryptic terms for a reason, okay. but like as the age of degeneration accelerates and people have less focus and concentration uh, and people are more consumed by the evils and the darkness of the world, if you are a savvy enough person, you can use that same energy and sort of like jujitsu, twist it around or bounce it. And that's sort of what David character is trying to do. Mm. he's trying to be like, look, I'm a black person in a dying, uh, at least in America, a dying religion Mm -hmm. that doesn't have a lot of black people and people are consumed with their psychosis and sociopaths and all these other ailments and demons. And we have to find a way, and maybe that's also the goal of evil. Mm. We have to find a way to twist this darkness around. Mm. Because in the old days, 2000 years ago, you didn't have to twist the darkness around. There was so much light. You could just live in the light and use that and get to your goal mm. as a Buddhist or as a Christian. You could just follow the rules, be a good person. There were churches everywhere. There were people to study with, and you would get your goal. Now it's not possible. Mm. You have to entangle with the darkness because it's just everywhere. It's in our media. It's in our phones. It's in our religion. It's in our politics. Everywhere we go, we see darkness. So rather than trying to fight against it, how can we use that energy to get to the light? Mm. And that's what I feel like, this is my take, of course. Mm -hmm. That's what I feel like David in the show and people like that are trying to do. And that is something that transcends religion and transcends race and transcends, you know, nationality. Uh, But yes, there is a huge decline in all people joining Catholicism and especially, you know, black priests. Mm. Wow. Well, I think this is the perfect way to end this interview. Thank you so much, Oren, for joining us. Um, I, Like I said, Evil, uh, I think new episodes drop on Paramount Plus every Sunday. Um, and so I think every you Sunday, just, yeah. Last, I think in the last four or five weeks, right? Yes. So how, how many episodes are, do we get this season in season two? There are 13. Yes. So. Oh, lucky 13 or unlucky 13. Lucky 13. That is great. So we will be tuning in. Um, Thank you, listeners, for listening to another episode of the Spectrum Lounge. See you on the other side. Thank you very much for having me.